we've been playing that bumper video for the last several weeks now, and I can't help but think that maybe that's a metaphor for how you feel and where you are in your walk with God or in your walk in life. And so if that's how you feel this morning, uh, we know, just know that Jonah's God is alive and well, and he's working in your life, he's working in my life, and he's working to help us to see things from his perspective. And that's critical, to see things from God's perspective. And this was a, a very difficult thing for him, and it, God put him through a series of experiences to bring him to the place where he could actually love the people he was called to minister to. And you know, we just heard an incredible presentation from our school superintendent this morning, and we so appreciate Nate for coming and being a part of our service. And I just want to encourage you, the church really has a twofold purpose, and that is to gather together so that we can learn from um, God's word and just to understand his perspective and get his viewpoint on things. But not only is it that, gathering together the people, there's a scattering purpose of the church. So having gathered, we are to scatter now and to live out, not just attend the church, but be the church. And so this morning, uh, I think it's great if this is your school district, if perhaps you represent another school district, to understand, as John Wesley said, the world is my parish. John Wesley was kind of kicked out of the Church of England at one point, and he said, it's okay. He went and preached to coal miners in the fields, okay? The world, the community was his parish, and I think it's a great model and a great ministry purpose for each of us is to understand that this, what happens here is ministry, and it's awesome, but it, it, it extends beyond the borders of the building and the property, and it extends into all that we do in our community, the world, the community is our parish. And I want you to see it as ministry. It's not just filling in a substitute job, but it is actually a ministry that God can give you as we partner with others um, to just help people see and understand life and love from God's perspective, okay? So it's a great opportunity, and that's what we're here. And we just want to invite you into that that kind of dynamic life of just learning and growing and letting God use you to make this uh, community an incredible place. I've often said some people always look for Mayberry, so they're moving all the time trying to find Mayberry. Another way to look at that is to create Mayberry where you are, to create the kind of community you've always wanted. And you can do that, and I can do that by simply living out the gathering of the church for equipping and preparing, and then the scattering of the church to make a difference in a practical way. And so thank you, Nate Lau, for a great job. I love the feedback loops he's setting in our community. I love his attendance at NCI and just being a part of that conversation, the, the uh, convening of a once a quarter of a feedback group that meets together to give feedback. It's just incredible. I think God's going to use it, and, and it could be a win for Ligonier, our Mayberry, okay? So thank you for your support in that and your endeavor that way. I was thinking last evening uh, about what the things that God uses and has used in my life to change my perspective. Sometimes my perspective doesn't want to change very easily. I get locked in on a perspective, and maybe even a little narrow-minded in maybe how I see things. And so I was just thinking about all the things that God has used in my life to change my perspective. Um, a close call with death will definitely change your perspective. In fact, we saw a documentary here last uh, Sunday evening about that. And it's amazing how, and I think I understand why God doesn't describe heaven too much to us because the people who experienced those didn't want to come back. And so if God lets us see too much, we just are going to be discontent for the rest of our life. And so I think there's this veil and this, uh, this curtain that we can't see beyond because it would just breed discontent. And so, but it definitely changes your perspective. If you have had a near-death experience, you, your perspective changes. You don't, you don't look at life the same way ever again because you were very close to maybe having your life come to a conclusion that definitely is something God uses to change our perspective. A good teacher or a college experience uh, with, that gives you great insights, that will change your perspective. You learn something more than maybe you knew before, and now you're going to look at things differently. 
an unexpected loss in your life can change your perspective. An inconvenience you have to deal with or, or maybe there's an illness that you have to deal with, that changes your perspective. Uh, a conflict-filled relationship will change it. A trip to a new country. I remember going to Jamaica and coming back and going to the grocery store and just standing at the grocery store. I was amazed at having immersed myself in a, in, in a country where grocery stores are kind of a precious commodity in places. And you come back and you just kind of, I, just stood, I, I was just in brain lock. I didn't know what to get. I saw so many options on the shelf. And they don't have that kind of experience. It's kind of a reverse, uh, a reverse cultural shock when I got back. But that will change your perspective. You won't look at grocery stores and everything ever the same again when you walk through that experience of a new country and you come back. A move out of your parents' house will change your perspective. It's amazing that refrigerator doesn't automatically get stocked. And you got to figure that out, right? A boyfriend or girlfriend, a marriage will change your perspective. It will color it and how you see life. Uh, A new baby that you parented will change your perspective. I've seen spiritually disinterested people become pursuers and seekers of God when they become a dad or a mom because their perspective was changed. They now have a responsibility. So God uses a failure and a mistake even to change our perspective. God is all about a perspective change. He has been working with me in my perspectives for years honing them, shaping them, chiseling them, focusing them, uh, trying to de-skew them. He's trying to help me to see life as he sees it and to see the people I'm called to minister to as he sees them. And so I think probably one of the greatest things that God uses among this plethora of things that he uses to change our perspective, one of the big things he uses is an encounter with him. To change how you see life. Maybe God's got an encounter for you today. As we try to wrap up this uh, book of Jonah, the fourth chapter. And of course you know that uh, Jonah has had, definitely had an encounter with God. You saw just a little snippet of that uh, being thrown into the ocean, the Mediterranean Ocean. He survives it. God took care of it. Now he's in Nineveh. And God has asked him to go share his love, uh, a message of really a message of, of confrontation, a, a message of, uh, of repentance. You know, 40 days, Nineveh, things have to change. And if they don't change, then Nineveh will be overthrown. Literally, if you count the Hebrew words in the text, the, there's five Hebrew words that, Nineveh, that Jonah speaks to the people of Nineveh. Five, can you imagine a five-word sermon? I think I'm already up to about 500 already. This guy, a five-word sermon, and amazingly enough, a city of probably half a million people hit their knees in repentance. Not just the people, but the animals too. It was the most incredible revival that's ever happened. And so, but Jonah, because of his narrow perspective, he doesn't see it as something to rejoice in. In fact, he's angry about it. In fact, let's just read the text this morning, and we'll get it out on the table so I can kind of work it and uh, unpack it here as we go. Uh, slide 22, if you would, is where we're going to pick it up. Uh, so let's just pick up. This is a four-chapter book. We're in the fourth chapter today. And so, in fact, back up a slide for me, if you would. Uh, Jeremy, it says here in chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, that is, they repented, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to share with you in a little bit why Jonah had a hard time doing what God asked him to do here with this particular people group. Having understood that Jonah is, he's just had an incredible revival after a five-word sermon, Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, ironically enough. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home in the motherland, that is what I tried to forestall 
by fleeing to Tarshish, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents for sending calamity. Have you ever heard someone use good theology in a bad way? He did. In fact, uh, church, understand this morning that that particular verse about the, uh, given, that describes the attributes of God Know that that is the most quoted Old Testament verse by other Old Testament authors in the entire Old Testament. Nine to ten times you will see those words that are ascribed to God and an unpacking of who God is. Nine to ten times. And if you allow for slight word modification, 22 times you will see this definition given of God. See, there's no Old Testament God and New Testament God. And the Old Testament God is this mean dude, and the New Testament God is nicer. No, no, no. He's always been. He's always been gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That's who he is. Jonah understood that. And he understands that's the way God rolls, and it bothered him because God has no right in his narrow view. God has no right to be nice to someone I don't like. And this revival hits this people group. He cannot stand the Ninevites and the Assyrians. I'll tell you why in just a moment. And he understands who God is, though. He understood it very well. And he's coming to God and he's saying, God, I knew you were going to do this. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you think it's a little over the top, right? Now, Lord, take my life. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Verse 4, go to the next slide. Is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry? I love how God just works with them, right? He works with this bad perspective. He doesn't just look at him, you know, you little dweeb. How dare you talk to me that way? I'll save who I want to save, you little twerp. Who do you think you are bossing me around, right? He never does that. He works with him. And he has this conversation as if, Jonah, I want to invite you into something. I want you to see something differently. And I'm going to lead you there as tenderly as I can, all right? Work with me, Jonah. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. He's kind of, you know how Jonah likes to, create little Edens, right? That's what Tarsus was, was a little Eden. He's going to escape to retire in Tarsus and have the little Eden around him. Well, he's going to make his little mini Eden out east of the city, all right? He made himself a shelter, and it's a substantial shelter because he, I guess he's probably going to be there for several days. And he sat in its shade and waited to see what, what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Congratulations. It's the only time in four whole chapters that Jonah's ever happy. You saw it right here. He's finally happy. All right. And what's amazing is he's got double shade. So he's got a shelter, his little mini Eden. He's got this little shelter out here. And then God sends a plant. Now he's got double shade. Shelter, double shade, all right, this thing is awesome, he's happy, but at, and so he's so excited about this, and his perspective, you know, this is great, this is something, you know, worth getting happy about, we've got thousands of people hitting their knees, he never, he's never smile, he never's happy, he, five word sermon that's successful, he's never happy, but this, this plant grows and shades him, and now all of a sudden, he's ready, he's just giddy and ecstatic, like it's a Super Bowl weekend right? But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. Next slide. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, there again, God is working with him. 
trying to help him see things from his perspective, from God's perspective. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Same question, three additional words, about the plant. It is, Jonah said, and I'm so angry. I wish I were dead. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Next slide. And this is the surprise, abrupt ending to a four-chapter book that you don't expect to see this coming. This is what it says. And God says, and should I, Jonah, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right right hand from their left hand, okay, little children. There's at least 120,000 little kids, all right? And there's also many animals, question mark, in the book. Wow. Just like that. It's open-ended. It's unexpected. And it's like, wow, what is the point about all that we have just read? And see, as we have worked through this book... And as we read this passage this morning, again, I'm proposing to you today that Jonah has this narrow perspective that says that, yeah, God is good and he's nice, but he's not good and nice to the right people. Uh, We've been looking and I've given you a little bit of the history of, uh, of Nineveh and Assyria and the Ninevites, Uh, slide number six, if you would. Uh, This will jog a a memory for some of you. But it was the Ninevites whose cruelty and idolatry, they were known really around the world. And this revival, this great revival that happened, happened in Mosul, the town of Mosul, which is Mosul today. And this is uh, in modern-day Iraq where this most incredible revival that's ever happened went down. It's incredible. But when I look at their history, and I've looked at some of this with you, I get it. I understand where Jonah's coming from. The Assyrians were terrorists. They were brutal. Um, it's a well-documented by the historians. Slide number 34, if you would, for me. When you look at the Assyrian reliefs, um, these, are, these are terroristic uh, people. They, uh, they will skin their enemies alive. You can see some of that suggested on the relief. They would hoist you up and, on pikes and let you die in the desert. Um, they would kind of link you together with fish hooks. They were the political, geopolitical bullies of the ancient world. And Jonah says, look, these guys don't deserve to live, much less a, mer- a message of mercy and grace. And how would you feel if you maybe had a family member that was caught up in the Assyrian onslaught of torture, and maybe you lost a family member? How would you feel about going to Assyria? And Nineveh and proclaiming a message. You see, this is a rebellious and an unrepentant nation, at least to Jonah. It was an affront to his sense of justice. And people shouldn't be getting away with this stuff that they're getting away with. And here's the thing. Assyria genuinely repented. And still Jonah hated it because his perspective was skewed. He couldn't see as God sees. You see, God had tears when he looked at Nineveh, 120,000 children, okay, children, even the animals. He had tears when he looks at Nineveh, and Jonah had smoke, by contrast, coming out of his ears. And he was driven by these thoughts, and see if they're familiar thoughts to you. I just can't seem to figure out God's love. I, I don't see how it really operates in the world. These questions are lingering there in the air for Jonah, and they're lingering in the air for you and for me. And so this book ends with an unanswered question. How did Jonah answer the question that God presents? And if we go back to slide number 25, you'll see the question again. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh where all these children live and then also even the animals, okay, and, and shall I not have concern or compassion for the great city of Nineveh that has, that has been the geopolitical bully of the world? Should I not have compassion on them? And the question remains then, 
What will Jonah do? How will he answer God's question? And he does what he does in other places in the book. He gives God the silent treatment. After this is read and spoken, you can hear crickets. There's nothing. There's no Jonah chapter 4 verse 12. This is where it ends. But I want to suggest something to you this morning. Even though Jonah doesn't answer the question in, verse, in a verse 12 of Jonah 4, because it ends here at 11, I want you to see this morning that the fact that Jonah is telling you about his story in book form, that he's actually telling you in the book what happened when God presents the question. Like the elder brother in Luke 15 Will he go inside and, have, and attend the party of the younger brother that's come home? Or will he stay on the outside and refuse to participate in the festivities of a homecoming? That's the question. What will Jonah do? Will he stay in that elder brother role? Or will he enter in? And the fact that Jonah is telling you about what all of his faults and foibles in the entire book of Jonah, it suggests to us that Jonah finally got it. Nobody could have given us this story but Jonah himself, right? He talks about a prayer he prayed in the fish's belly. Well, nobody was, else was there to hear it. And so, and so only Jonah could have written this story. And how do we know that he makes the speech in the beginning of chapter 4, the, the I hate the, the God of love speech that he gives us here where he enumerates the, the characteristics of God and, and somehow he uses it against God to say that God is just simply too nice to the wrong people. How do we know these things? Because Jonah was there and it was his life story and it was his experience and nobody would have ever would be able to write a book that would make him look so bad except the man who had been humbled by it all. You see, Jonah finally got to the place in his life where he didn't, he was freed from the approval from his fellow Hebrews, what they would think about him going to minister in, in this, this geopolitical city, bully city of, of, of ancient Assyrian, Nineveh in Assyria. See, seeing as God sees can take your sinful life of self-righteousness and it it allows you to hold it up as a trophy of the grace of God because that's all that matters. And the reason Jonah can write about his childishness, the reason he can write about his pouting spells, the reason he can be so open and honest about his anger and and, and the fact that he he refuses to go in, he's going to be like the prodigal son, that elder brother that just makes his little Eden shelter out on the edge of the city and he's going to watch this thing and he's going to watch God just totally obliterate, hopefully totally obliterate these people, right? He's kind of setting himself up for that. A front row seat. The fact that he's so open and honest about all of his faults and foibles suggests to us that Jonah finally did end up seeing and understanding life from God's perspective, that he, that he holds up his cantankerous, hard-headed, pouty life before a watching world, and he says, world, let me tell you how I answered the question that God proposes. I have nothing to hide anymore. Here's my story, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, all of it. Here's who I am and what I am. He understands something. That he's beyond, he is beyond having to view life in the narrow, restricted perspective that he's had before this encounter with God. And so now he offers to the world an entire book that answers the question. You see that? And so when we look at Jonah's testimony, we, we could say that, Jonah would be able to tell you, if you don't have a love for the people you're called to in Jonah 1, then it's not going to work if you don't love them. If you quote scripture from, the, from memory in a fish's belly and Jonah 
splices together like 10 different psalms in the fish's belly in Jonah chapter 2. And he quotes memory. He quotes, he has memorized all of this scripture and he quotes it. But it doesn't matter unless you, you love the people you're called to minister to. And if you have a covenant nation with with covenant nation pedigree credentials like Jonah does, and he even calls God Yahweh here in chapter 4, not the impersonal Elohim of chapter 3. He calls God Yahweh here, the covenant. You are the covenant God, and you can have these covenant God credentials. You can have all these incredible connections and promises, but if you don't love the people you're called to minister to, it's not going to work. And if you can have national recognition for expanding your nation's boundaries slide 27 if you would for me national recognition for expanding your nation's boundaries and he brought a lot of money to his people Israel back home and you can have all of that to your name and to your pedigree and to your resume but it will not work unless you're you love the people that you're called to love in the world Jonah never loved them. He technically obeyed, but his heart wasn't in it. You know, if we back up and we look at this uh, a little more slowly here this morning, if we go, go to verse 1, if you would, for me, I think we'll see some of the things that keep us, we're going to see some of the things that keep us from seeing as God sees, some impediments to seeing as God sees sees what are some of the things that keep us from loving some of the things that keep us from seeing and having our perspective enlarged as to what God wants to do in and through us and and with maybe people we don't think he wants that that we want him to love right to Jonah he says this seemed uh, slide 22 this seemed very wrong and he became angry and it's like Uh, God, I told them what you asked me to tell them, and now you're changing the plan. And now everybody back home is going to see me as fraternizing with the enemy, and and they're going to see me as undermining official Jewish foreign policy here. And he's angry. In verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. And again, we've read it just a moment ago. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home Right, And he gives all these wonderful insights on who God really is. It's God's patient love that works with us. And rejecting a true view of God here in verse 2 will keep us from seeing as God sees. You know, several years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book, Your God is Too Small. And he goes through that book and he just gives us these caricatures or pictures of God. And one of the pictures he gives of God is that God is a perennial grievance deity, that some people look at God as a great disappointment, that there's an unanswered prayer, there's a disaster that happened in my life. And so we have this internal concept or idea that, that, that this is how God is. And because God is this way and I'm, I am grieved, okay, that there's the reasons why that skews our perspective when we see God in those terms. But here, Jonah says, and he quotes this incredible verse, and he's like, he's saying, God, I see all these attributes about who you are, and I'm just saying, you are too nice, and there's a subtle shift in the blame here. It's like, I would have done my job, God. I would have gone like you asked me to go, God, if you weren't as nice as you are. And you, you're the blame for this, for me trying to run away, because it, it, it's your fault. If you judge the wicked like you're supposed to, there wouldn't have been a problem. I'd have signed up on the ne- next bus out of town to go to Nineveh and do my job. You're too nice. You're nice to the wrong people. Have you ever been there? That was Jonah. And your view of God can skew your perspective of who you're going to love. God says, Jonah, I love the Ninevites in spite of their violence, and I love you in spite of your arrogance. It's who I am, Jonah. It's how I roll. Verse 3 says, Now, Lord, he says, take away my life 
for it is better for me to die than to live. God, if you're going to be all gracious, just kill me now. I'd rather die than live in a universe where there's unrelenting grace for undeserving people. And this nation is just going to cause problems for us later. I don't want to go there because they're going to end up rising up and taking our own sons and daughters someday. This rogue geopolitical enemy of our country, I can't preach there because they're going to become stronger than we want them to and they're going to expand their borders. And what's that going to be, mean for me and my family and my country? This is what's going on behind the scenes in the book of Jonah. You know, God's point is like, he makes an incredible point here. Uh, You know, we, in fact, exactly what Jonah thought might happen, it did happen about 30 years later after this revival. The Assyrian country did grow and expand and they took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity in 722 BC. Slide number five, if you would for me. Slide number five. And then what happens is uh, they come down then after conquering the northern kingdom of Israel. They come down into the southern kingdom of Israel. This is about 30 years after the Jonah revival. Okay? And uh, they, so they, they strayed from God having repented. Uh, they strayed from that repentance and they began to expand just like Jonah thought they would. And eventually they got down to the southern kingdom or the nation of, or the city of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And I want you to look what God did uh, to this nation now that has decided to flex its political muscle again and try to subjugate these people of God with promises from God and covenants from God. I want you to look what happened uh, when they got down to the city of Jerusalem. Slide 28, if you would. This is kind of interesting to me. Uh, let me just have a geek out moment for a moment because I, I like the history of this and the backstory. That night, okay, so the Assyrians, 30, 40 years after Jonah's revival, they rebel again. They come in, they take the northern kingdom, they, they come down now to Jerusalem. They're going to attack Jerusalem, right? And the night, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Wow. God is like, Jonah, will you just preach to the Assyrians? And if they rise up and persecute later, I've got you protected in covenant love. Don't, don't, your perspective is skewed, Jonah. You're looking at this thing 30 and 40 years down the road, and you're going to withhold your love because you can't figure it out. You're going to withhold your love from someone who needs it in your life. You think we'd ever do that? I can't, see, I can't figure this out. How, I can't figure God's love out how it's going to work, how it's going to play out. I'm being called to love somebody I don't know that I can love. And, and, and there's reasons why I can't love them. And, I've, and for Jonah, it was a hyper-nationalistic viewpoint perspective of life. But for you and for me, it might, be, it might be disappointment. It might be hurt. It might be family conflict and other things. But there's people in our life that don't, we don't feel like we can, we can love them in the way that God is asking us to love them. We have this skewed perspective. We're trying to play the movie forward and figured it all out and God just says Jonah I want you to preach don't try to figure it out preach I've got you I'll take care of your future if these guys are a problem down the road I got it I got it preach obey me love the person I've called you to love and maybe that's you this morning I don't, you're trying to play the movie forward. You're trying to figure out how I can love this person I don't think I can love. In fact, I want you to do something for me this morning. Everybody take out your idols, your smartphones. Not your idol, misspoke, your smartphone. Take out your idols and smartphones, okay? Here's what I want you to do this morning. Whatever note uh, app that you use, whatever note app that you use, whatever that is. I use simple notes, some of you use other things. Open that note app up, and I want you to take that idol out, take that, that phone out, and, and I want you to type in 
the name of the person you don't think you can love. Don't let anybody see it. Okay? Type in the name of the person, the group, the organization, the ideological group that represents something that you just don't think you can love. And you know where I'm going with that. Because that's the very person God's calling you to love. He's calling you to love them. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to figure out apologies, timelines, how it's all going to go down, how the history is going to transpire. Okay? Type in the name of the person you don't think you can love. Verse 4 says, slide 22 on the screen if you would. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Some of you are like, can we have like more than one name? Okay, if you have five, go for it. Okay, some of you are like, can we just have like overtime at church and I can just like complete my list of about 75 by the time we get out of here today? All right, listen, at least one, Okay. But the Lord replied, slide 22, is it right for you to be angry? Again, there's crickets, there's silence. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. He wanted nothing to do with them. You see this? He's like the elder brother on the outside. He's not going to come into the party. He's not going to get to know them. Something that's going to skew your perspective Something that's going to keep you from seeing life as God wants you to see it is, is a refusal to go in, to, to rub shoulders with, to get to know, to have conversations with the person on your smartphone that you don't think you can love. It's a refusal to interact with them. Jonah preaches his five-word sermon. Then he goes out and he builds a shelter. And he says, I don't want anything to do with these people. That'll skew your perspective. Jonah had gone out and he sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade. He waited to see what would happen to the city. It's a word for shelter. is actually pavilion or tabernacle. So he's planning on being there for several days. He's counting the days down, 40, 39, 38, 37, 20, 15, 10, 9, 8. With me now, everybody. 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Showtime. He's ready. He's got his peanuts. He's got his pork-free bratwurst. He's got his Acadian beer and his nachos, and he's ready for the Super Bowl. Because God is going to, he's going to light them up. Finally, after all these years. You know the word that Jonah uses for overthrown in slide number 19, if you would for me? The word he uses for overthrown in Jonah 3, 4 is actually the word that's used for the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's expecting God. He wants God to do another Sodom and Gomorrah deal right in front of him. And he wants to be ringside, first row, front row seats to this. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his comfort verse 6 and Jonah was very happy about the plant why is he so happy about the plant because it looks like God is taking his side now right he sees this plant okay I want God to just toast these people that I can't stand, right? I want God to do that. I've got a front row seat to this, and now this plant grows up, and it's giving me shade. Hot dog. God is on my team. God is favoring me. It's going to happen. It's going to go down just like I hoped it would. And so he's happy. He's overjoyed. God is going to finally do some justice in the world. Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. 
And thus begins Jonah's perspective-correcting lesson. Is that Jonah, God's saying, you're loving lesser things, my brother. You're loving lesser things. Your perspective is clouded about what I want to do here in this great city of Nineveh in Assyria. And you know, Jonah, he, he's going to get mad about this. I've already read it. You remember, okay? But without that vine, without that plant, he gets to the place where he has no desire to go on. It's like he's lost something that had replaced God as the main joy in his life. This little plant, this little leafy concoction of a plant was, became his main joy and the focus of his life. And he had a relationship with God, but there was something else he valued more. And this morning, I want to ask you the question, what is your vine? I think the way God responds to this sort of ultimatum that, jo- that he gave, Jonah gave to God, growing a plant and taking it away, it's nothing short of brilliant because God is giving Jonah space for hard examination. He's shading him. He's helping him de-escalate, right? He clears his head so he can think straight. Then, bam, no plant. Tim Keller says in, in one of his books about this passage, He says that God monitors the flow of pains and troubles in your life. The timing of them, the proportion of them, the nature of them. And the vine brought comfort and blessing and joy to Jonah. The worm brought sorrow and disappointment and loss. And so this morning, two questions. What is your vine? What has become so precious to you? More important than your relationship with God. This thing right here, if I've got this, I can be happy. This is a sign God is on my side. What is your vine this morning? And then I would ask a second follow-up question. What is your worm? What has brought sorrow? Um, What has brought Uh, disappointment into your life. Jonah's heart gets attached to this little thing and then God removes it in such a way not to see Jonah squirm, not to see Jonah miserable. No, no, God doesn't do it that way. God sends worms into our life to keep us from building our life on something that will eventually give way, something that that we cannot build our life upon. And one of the great perspective uh, clearing experiences that we can have in life is actually to learn to give thanks for the worms that God sends when the vines dry up and go away. And maybe there's a worm that God has sent into your life. You've been preoccupied on the vine. God's over here somewhere. Not that important. You're you're preoccupied with the vine and the vine of your discontent, the vine of your being upset, the vine of your anger, the vine of your disappointments. That's been the focus of your life. And God has allowed the worm to come in to wean you away from that, to help you to see that there's a walk in a relationship with God, a perspective walk in correcting relationship with God that lets you see life the way you're supposed to see it. And God sends the worm not to see a squirm, but to help us become the person that can say, thank you, God, for the worm. It weaned me off of what I loved and I should have been loving you. Verse 8, when the sun rose and God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, he wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. Clinging to your hurt will keep you from seeing as God sees. It's another perspective skewing experience in life. When we cling to our hurts, we don't see as God sees. But God said to Jonah, verse 9, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned. It's a word that means grieving and mourning. You've been, tears has come to your eyes over this plant, Jonah, about this plant through through you, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern? Jonah, can I not have tears in my eyes? For the great city of Nineveh, especially the 120,000 kids that are within it. 
and also many animals? God says, Jonah, you've got your heart attached to the plant so that when it died, you died. And your heart was so attached to it that what affected it affected you, Jonah. And Jonah, it was, just a, it was just a plant. You weren't even invested in it, Jonah. I provided it. You didn't even cultivate or water or fertilize or trim. I provided it. It showed up, and that became your world. The, the vine became everything about you. I love these people who are made in my image, and yeah, they are the geopolitical bullies of the world, but there's children in those families, and there's people within that culture to love, and no, I don't agree with it, and yes, I will hold them accountable, and if that means 185,000 Assyrians later, then that's what that means, but I will hold people accountable, Jonah. Will you do me this favor? Will you love the people I've called you to love? How does Jonah answer the question this morning, coming full circle? While he doesn't answer the question in verse 11, he answers with his life in the whole book that he writes. The fact that he's telling you his story, he's telling you that he answered, that he in fact packed up his stuff, he made his way into the city of Nineveh, and starts doing follow-up with people. Why? Because he saw something of the grace of God. And this unanswered question that God has helped him restore a perspective of love and of discipleship. Of, of the person in his life he never thought he could love. God brought him to this place where finally he could love. His blurry and skewed perspective was finally corrected. And God did his work of loving someone through him. What's your vine this morning? What have you come to trust in and love more than you love your walk with God? What is your worm this morning? What has brought disappointment and heartache to your life? And could it be that God is inviting you this day to come to him and to, and to reaffirm who he is in your life this go to verse 2 if you would for me that you would come to him chapter 4 verse 2 you would come to him this gracious God you would come to him this morning you would say you are gracious and you are compassionate and you're slow to anger and you're abounding in love and you tell me this 22 times in the old testament with slight word modification at nine or ten verbatim quotes you tell me this over and over and over again and god i've been about the vine i've been about the worm and i've not been about you this is who you truly are and i've refused to let this kind of love and graciousness flow through my life because of this few perspective of all these issues i've got going in my life that I've, I have failed to be that, that uh, transmission of your love and grace. We'll wrap up with this, with this this morning. Uh, I thought of this, slide number 35, if you would, for me. Uh, the mission of Nuremberg tells an interesting and intriguing story. Henry Garricky was an evangelical Lutheran minister from St. Louis, Missouri, and at the outset of World War II, his two eldest sons entered the military, and uh, Garricky at the time was 49 years of age, and he enlisted as an army chaplain in World War II, and he worked among the Allied troops in the European theater of operations. And so uh, his most notable service came after the war, however, uh, when everyone else was uh, returning home, including his two sons that were in the military, uh, Garricky received a letter asking him to stay behind, and they wanted him to stay behind because he knew the German language. And he was a prime candidate to work among the Nazi Third Reich war prisoners awaiting trial in Nuremberg. Garricky 
was asked to serve as a chaplain to those who were there. And, and, and at this point in history, you have to understand that the most hated individuals on the face of the earth were these Nazi war criminals that were imprisoned in Nuremberg uh, doing an international trial. It was Gerecki uh, who would be kneeling beside the architects of the Holocaust and administering communion to them. I read Tim Townsend's well-written book, as I said, and after ministering to them for several weeks during the trial, uh, Gerecki offered them counsel and communion. He did daily devotional services, uh, and, and these are some of the uh, higher higher-ranking uh, officers in the Nazi uh, officers group, okay, and they're there, and Gerecki is there with them. He's there when their sentences are read. Um, he was there in the cell when these guys, they dropped to their knees and they gasped for air minutes before execution. He prays final prayers with them. Uh, Hermann Goring killed himself by swallowing cyanide before he was executed, and Garricky said that that was, ironically, he was the guy that sang Silent Night the loudest in the chapel services. But Garricky was nearby as several war criminals were executed by hanging in an old, uh, by hanging in an old gymnasium in 1946. They blacked out the windows, and then they hung up a, a black curtain from the basketball hoops and rims to, to obscure the coffins, the 11 coffins that were there in the gymnasium. And later, when the American press published the story, including Gorecki's willingness to graciously extend his hand to these Nazi prisoners, he was reviled and despised. And back at home, everybody saw this as a traitorous act. He was fraternizing with the enemy. They hated that he arranged prison visits for their families, to get, and he got to know their families. But Gorecki continued. He quietly worked among the Germans for many weeks, reminding them of the gospel of Christ, and he offered them the hope of life if they would ever come to Christ in repentance. You have to understand this is really hard for me because I have an interest in World War II and the Holocaust, and I just, I just am heartbroken over what was done to six million plus people. And if I'm going to hate anybody, that's who I'm going to hate. But I'm reading the story. And God's talking to me because this guy's a chaplain. He's doing what I don't know that I could do. And many of the Nazi war criminals had families with small children, and those children had questions about heaven and what would happen to their dads. And as a result, in the last days before their executions, some of these hated men came in genuine repentance, but people back home hated Gerecki for this. Their sins were so great, and millions had suffered, and no one was spared, not even the, the Jewish children. Slide 36, Gericke tried to get Hermann Goring to Christ. They became friends, and there were uh, things about Goring that you would have liked. And, and Townsend goes through these things. You would have enjoyed talking to this guy. But within a few hours of execution, Goring would not yield to Jesus. He could not accept the Christian faith. He made fun of the creation story in Genesis. He, he scoffed at the idea of an inspired Bible. And he refused the atonement of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins to reconcile us to God. Gorecki said, just, just, just say Jesus saves me, uh, Herman. Just say Jesus saves me and you, can, and you can walk in in his grace and you can have life. And, 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 and Goring barks back and he says, I can't do that this Jesus you always speak of to me he's just another smart Jew when, when one is dead that's the end of everything and he says this within minutes of committing suicide Garrick he said I can't give you communion Herman if you don't believe in Christ because that's what communion is and your little girl said she wants to meet you in heaven and Goring said well she believes in your savior but I don't and I'll take my chances my way Townsend goes on to describe the events of what happened in the gymnasium, and I will spare you the graphic details of that. 
But there's one place in the book where he says the creaking of the rope against the huge eye steel, uh, steel eye bolts at the top of the gallows 15 feet high. You could just hear the creaking of the rope echoing through that gymnasium. Slide 37. Within a few hours of the set execution, Goring bit down on a glass vial of of potassium cyanide. They hear the gurgling and the choking, and they rush into the room. His toes are curled. His coloration is already starting to change. And Gorecki, the army chaplain, leaned down into the ear of Herman Goring, and he said, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, Herman. You know, this morning, our perspective can be skewed in such a way that if we miss the one to whom the Jonah story points, it will keep us seeing and loving as God sees and loves. I'm reminded this morning of 700 years after the Jonah story, there was a man sitting on a hillside looking at a city, kind of like Jonah looking at Nineveh. And this man, 700 years later, about 33, 35, 36 B.C., right in that, or A.D., in that range of time, 700 years later, he's sitting and he's watching, and instead of waiting for the destruction of this city that's chosen to crucify him, he has tears in his eyes rather than smoke coming out of his ears. There's tears in his eyes, and instead of anger, this man is weeping, and he's weeping for the people in the city of Jerusalem, and instead of calling down condemnation and Sodom and Gomorrah-type judgment, this man cries out in compassion. Slide number 32, if you would, for me. He, he cries out in compassion, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing, look. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, "I'm I'm like a chicken. I'm thinking, Jesus, you're pretty cool, and you just kind of blow our categories. I wish you, sometimes I wish, you know, could you, could you just be an eagle with talons? No, Jesus is going to blow our categories. He says, no, I, I'm like a mother hen. I'm like a chicken. And why is he like a chicken? Because the only thing a chicken can do is throw itself into the mouth of the fox when it comes looking for the chicks. And that hen lays down its life for those little chicks because that's the most important thing in the world to her. Jesus said, that's me. That's me. Jesus is the Jonah who should have been. And instead of waiting around wanting to die, rather than see his enemies be saved, Jesus laid down his life to save his enemies. And on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. And he threw his body into the open jaws of death so that he might shelter us forever under his wings of righteousness. That we who were once enemies of God, estranged from him, might have our lives now hidden in Christ because of his grace. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a perspective-correcting view that will finally help you to love. You know, on your idols, all right? You, you wrote the name on your idols this morning, our idols? That name you put on there? In light of this, in light of this series, Will you love? Will you love? Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to demand apologies. Don't try to demand all these demands before God. You do this and this and then I'll finally do this. No, no, no. God says, my grace is strong enough and powerful enough to help you love somebody you can't stand, that you didn't know you could love. And when you see it, when we see and understand this, it wasn't just for the people, it was also for the animals of Nineveh.
why don't we wrap up the stream? I want to show the in-house people this morning uh, of uh, something I discovered this morning before I...